Hi, this is Open Arted, a podcast exploring why making art is more practical than we think. Today you will hear a conversation with Sean Gregory, a vice principal and director of innovation and engagement at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama in London. Sounds complicated, but Sean is responsible for a very important role regarding musicians' development beyond conservatories. Do conservatories do enough to help musicians create a strong enough workplace of professional portfolio musicians? Seven years ago, The Guardian published Sean's article. He wrote, quote, As 21st century professional practitioners, a musician must not only excel as a performer, but also as a teacher, leader, and creative collaborator across a range of styles and genres. However, the professional development of classically trained musicians still primarily focuses on the pursuit of excellence in relatively narrow terms, interpreting and performing great works of the past at the expense of experimenting and progressing musical skills relevant to the needs of today's society. End of quote. So has professional music scene changed? Stay tuned for our chat with Sean, where we discuss musical excellence, soft skills, role of conservatories, and much more. So I will just hit a record because my last recording ended up that I didn't record my guest. Oh, no. <laughs> so I need to be careful with that. Check. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So just to warm up. Yep. Would you tell me uh, what did you have for breakfast? Oh, what did I have for breakfast? Well, actually, I had no breakfast this morning. I'm not great with breakfast. I would normally have some yogurt and granola and banana with a bit of honey. <laughs> but it was a bit of a rush this morning, as you know. Yes, I late, yes. So I uh, didn't quite get that. But that's my usual breakfast. All right. I, I also had a very weird breakfast. I, I had uh, fruit, which normally I don't. Oh, you know, really? as a Lithuanian, <laughs> I normally eat uh, eggs and bread, bread and, and avocado, yes. yeah, like yeah, a yeah. proper protein yes. breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> So I have to uh, get used to the English style yes. more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this fruit thing is <laughs> doesn't always work. <laughs> exactly. So thank you so much for agreeing to do this. I know that you are really busy, especially when it involves innovation and engagement. Yeah. And uh, I will just uh, read a description of your work. So you are a vice principal and a director of innovation and engagement at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama. Yes, that's it. Could yeah. you explain for a person who doesn't understand anything about innovation and engagement, what do you do? Of course. Um, so there are, I'll start with, yeah, innovation can mean all sorts of things, as can engagement, of course. But I'll just give it in the context of my own background I'm a musician originally uh, and uh, I did piano and flute and studied traditionally uh, along that traditional route uh, but I became very interested in composition and then creativity and I started as a composer who worked um, very much on on my own as you'd expect of a composer writing producing things for other musicians to play very long story short I became more and more interested in the collaborative process of creating nowadays we'd call it co-creativity it's often used co-creation um, but the idea um, cutting straight to it of being in a room with other people and creating something making something happen through music because that's what I do and actually that was my that was the turning point for me in terms of I do want to be in music <laughs> and I have something to offer in music and you know that that's moved me on in life to to what I'm doing now um, and I think at the time innovation then as I was completing my postgraduate studies here at Guildhall in a course called performance and communication skills and this was in the late 1980s and at that time was a very innovative course it was set up um, by someone called Peter Renshaw in partnership in collaboration with a composer called Peter Weigold and the whole premise of the course it was a year-long course uh, and the idea was that you worked as an ensemble 
as a group of musicians. I think we were a group of 16 musicians. We were musicians from all sorts of background and training, some classical, some more jazz, some self-taught, some so-called non-European musicians, musicians who'd come through other cultures and other backgrounds. And we made music together and we um, went into all sorts of different contexts to create work basically sometimes with other art forms with theater with dance uh, with musicians from other cultures uh, but critically also we went out into the community and out into education contexts to work with young people with adults with people with all sorts of backgrounds and experiences to make music and that set me on my way and at that time it was a quite an innovative idea that as a musician you could use your skills in different ways you could use them in different settings uh, there was already the notion of community arts and community music and of course there was music education this came from a slightly different place in that you you worked as an artist you were first and foremost an artist in my in my um, instant a creative artist a creative composing musician and you just found ways of using those skills in lots of different ways Um, and this was uh, uh, at a time in the late 80s early 90s where there were a lot of questions even then around what's the role of an orchestra what's the role of a an opera company in society yes we know they give concerts, they give performances, and a certain type of audience comes. Um, but is it reaching everyone? And orchestras and opera companies at that point were just beginning to think about setting up their own education and outreach departments. And I was just coming into that, starting my career, and able to offer something, you know, as a composer and a creative leader, and to take musicians and singers out and to work into all sorts of different contexts. So I think at that time, and that that was the start of my journey, the innovative side and the engagement side was about what I, as a practitioner, as a creative musician, could bring to other musicians um, and to young people and to adults from all walks of life. Fast forward from then (laughs) to now, and in that time I've gradually, I developed my work as a practitioner, in my own right but then gradually came back into the guild hall and began to do some administration project managing then I became a program leader a head of department in some ways a typical journey um, of people who move back into institutions to work but because it was still a very new area in the guild hall there was no sort of pathway set out I was sort of making my own path and in a way the Guildhall was making its own path as well in terms of what musicians had to offer in the broader sense in um, in society as well as becoming excellent at what they originally set out to do in those traditional pathways. So um, I became a head of department. Um, the person I mentioned before, Peter Renshaw, he retired and we were just at that point embedding a lot of the work we were doing into the school. We set up a master's and then an undergraduate programme in this area of work. Uh, and then um, the next part of the innovation was to develop very strong links with the Barbican Centre next door and indeed the London Symphony Orchestra. And I became a director of creative learning. Um, and that uh, was me overseeing all the um, the programs, the education and outreach programs, as they were then called, uh, not only in music but in theatre, uh, in visual art and in film as well, um, developing new programs with artists uh, across the Barbican and here at the Guildhall as well for students and for the wider public. So that all continued, and now I've become this vice principal and director of innovation and engagement here. What that means now, so you've got my potted history then, but I wanted to set the context, because I think the it reason I'm saying it, yes. is, is that the context of innovation keeps shifting and changing. And whilst it includes a lot of the things I've just been talking about, I think now, even more than ever, it's about what a musician or indeed an artist um, can bring to society. And in order to know what you have to offer in skills, you need time I think to think about that to reflect on that and 
contextualize the skills that you have built up as a musician and art uh, and an artist so innovation and engagement now means it's a combination of training that we offer students here within the school as part of their development so they are thinking about what they can take and develop when they go into the outside world combined with quite specific opportunities for new enterprises creative enterprises to be set up um, as part of um, your training it may not be directly curriculum related but we offer the forums for students to try new ideas to try new collaborative ideas um, and then also when they leave to have the opportunity to put forward ideas that we will then support and, and develop as well so we have a number of things on the go but within innovation and engagement as it stands we do a lot of knowledge exchange work we have a number of starter projects that are running we do a lot around coaching and mentoring we do a lot around um, uh, for example, we have something called Guildhall Live Events, which is more video map making using a lot of technology, mixing music and performance events that go on, uh, not only in Guildhall, but outside the school as well. And the last thing I mentioned is research, this idea that you can you keep researching. You don't have to be an academic researcher, but you have the scope to keep developing, uh, researching and developing. It's like R&D, research and development of your own ideas not only when you're studying at higher education level or as you leave but on a lifelong learning basis so lifelong learning is a very important part of innovation engagement it keeps changing you keep growing and developing personally but things around you keep changing as well so we're being alive to that shift too it's very interesting because yesterday we were discussing with my uh, piano partner, Anna, what we could uh, ask, you know, and uh, the first question was why you decided to stay in a, such a conservative uh, environment as, you know, music conservatory because it's, or art conservatory because it is conservative. But I think you answered the question because you saw that there is a niche to kind of change that. Yeah. And... Uh, I wanted to ask you, how do you think is the best way to change or influence such a conservative environment as classical music? I don't really know how much you are in touch with classical musicians or you work a bit more maybe now outside this field, but I'm still very curious, how do you you know, make this change in such a conservative environment? That's a really important question. Um, it's not always easy and um, I think more than ever and I'm saying <laughs> I'm not just saying this I think um, specialist arts institutions call them conservatoires but specialist higher education institutions um, are genuine can be and should be genuine catalysts for change, for the better in society. Um, and you can look at that in various ways. So one are the people who come in the first place to study and train to become, in the first instance, professional artists, professional performing artists, creative artists, production artists, whatever. Um, and I think this plays into your question about where does the change come? Uh, it can't just come, I think, from top down from someone like me or other people saying this is good for you this change has to happen um, and that was something I learned quite a long time ago because in my <laughs> earlier years I could be quite evangelical <laughs> about you really need to see and understand the change that's going on you have to and of course if you arrive at a, at a place like the Guildhall or anyway to study to be the best possible pianist or singer or violinist or actor um, you don't necessarily want to hear all these other things. You know, you yes. want to be the best. <laughs> My next question was, uh, you know, where do you find the most resistant yeah. within the students, within the staff? You know, so yeah, well, sorry to interrupt. Well, no, no, no. That's so. I think it can sometimes be from within with the student because they've arrived with a certain mindset. But I think you can't. I in a way, it's wrong to isolate those things. So I think. It, it might be that you hold a focus and you want to see that focus through. Um, but then it's what's around you. So your teacher, your principal study teacher or the 
the the culture of the instrument you play or the you know the way it's run the curriculum all of these things play play a part and um i think um there's so many things to say here but first and foremost what unlocks it is is your own curiosity your own creative imperative and i think that lies with all in all of us as human beings Um, it isn't necessarily everyone's comfort zone or what's first and foremost but we've got that in us and if you are coming to be a, a musician a great musician or a great actor or whatever I would argue it's critical that you have at least this curiosity about who you are, why you're doing what you do and how what you do could have the greatest possible impact in society. And um, I think in the first instance, as a conservatoire, we need to create an environment where that is possible to happen. It's not that a student arrives day one and they're told, you've got to change everything, sorry. <laughs> you can't just sit there and practice. You need to do all these other things as well. That, that just waters it down. But you, it's like starting a conversation, like the conversation we're having now, and enabling that critical reflection, that conversation, to be part of your training and development and time at the guild hall and that needs i'll stop in a moment that needs um obviously the student to feel empowered and encouraged to do that it also requires the staff members and the visiting artists to come in to be part of that conversation and to encourage that conversation and that thinking as well yes why do you think somehow all this uh, you know especially instrumental education is so much uh, centered around the almost like egoistic values, you know, mm-hmm. how well you play, about this excellence, which is, uh, as you mentioned in the article, in nowadays can be not so relevant. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. So what, yeah, what what uh, constitutes excellence? <laughs> what is excellence? What is excellence? Now? Um, and I think um, we, we, I think we like our benchmarks. We like to know... What makes this excellent, you know? So, obviously, if you're looking at repertoire or particular canons or particular styles of play, you know, um, without going into all the details, we know what I mean. And there are excellent ways of doing that, and they can be measured through exams, through recitals. If you start to really dig, even within that context, that well, people have different ideas of what excellent is. You know, one teacher or one methodology will say this is the best possible way of learning, of training, of interpreting, of presenting and performing this this type of repertoire or this style of music. Uh, another group will be over here and say, no, it's this way. So there's and that's wonderful. That That's part of the discourse. Um, so even within the world of classical training, there's no one immutable standard of excellence i would argue there's, there's it's a very dynamic way and some of it's down to personal taste and personal preference and who's that personal taste and preference for at the end of the day is it for the artists and their teachers and the original composer or is it for the people who come and listen to it and engage with it and it does something for them so that's an interesting dynamic anyway so that's that's one area of excellence now this other bit of excellence well, not bit of excellence, but you know, part of the discourse around excellence is, well, what what defines an excellent musician, an excellent practitioner in today's world? Playing your repertoire brilliantly, excellently, in terms of technique, in terms of performance and communication qualities, of course. But take that and start to put it in other contexts, in other situations. Do you have the skills the necessary skills then to be an excellent practitioner to be able to sit and play your repertoire in one way in one sort of context such as a concert hall yes but can you apply those skills in a high quality way in other contexts if you go into a classroom if you go into a hospital or a healthcare situation if you go into a collaborative situation do you feel you can be an excellent practitioner in that sort of context what does that take how do you feel when your music's not in front of you how do you feel if you're asked 
to find something in that moment that's going to resonate with the other people in the room. Play something that's going to work in this context. I know from <laughs> from personal experience as a high, relatively highly trained musician, that was a terrifying idea. Yeah, so when you said now without your score, I was like, oh, what, should, what should I do? <laughs> what what would I do if I would? Because actually with the Anna, with this Piano Fees project, we end, up <laughs> we end up in many situations where we have to improvise. Yeah. So somehow the, the work we do makes us, you know... That's uh, it appear in, the, in those situations and it's it's very scary yeah but since it's so organically ha you know happening yes. it's kind of you have to find a way exactly. but uh, it is very interesting how little of a skill i have uh, for you know improvisation on the spot and not even uh, regarding music you know it can yeah. be uh, if you build a project you yes. need to improvise you know maybe you don't have some equipment and yes it's it all happens uh, at the same time as yes. you say right yeah, yeah. i had a um I had a question if you think that these skills and this excellence, the definition of excellence changed a lot. And, you know, maybe say 80 years ago, 50 years ago, for a pianist or for an excellent musician, they would not need those skills. Would you say that uh, this is the case? And that in a way that there is this there is this difficulty in the education because, for example, myself, I, I received education which was more or less made for, you know, 20th century. Yes. And now yes. I have to be a 21st century musician. Yeah. And there is this dissonance. Yes. Well, I think there is. I, I guess I've got a question for you. What do you feel is the difference between a 20th century and a 21st century musician? What are the headlines for you with that? Well, it feels that they they could concentrate on much less things. Mm -hmm. You know, they could actually concentrate on uh, playing the piano. Say, if we talk about, I imagine in, in the Soviet Union, in former yes. Soviet Union, yeah. you know, where my country was, yeah. uh, there were pianists w which were represented by the state and they would get a salary yeah. to do their job. So that's for one, which makes it sustainable. Yeah. And then they could only practice and play their same program everywhere. Exactly. And it exactly. feels like today it is possible to live like that. But I I can strongly argue that it is not sustainable. Yeah. And, uh, and again, after reading your article, I started to question myself how much it is relevant. Yeah. Spot on. That, that's so interesting. And the... Um, Going back to what I started with, you know, as I was coming out of uh, of Guildhall, I, I did my degree in Bath, but as I came through, really knowing, having without being able to describe it, but feeling a feeling relevant, feeling I have something to offer here. Having um, wondered whether I was going to do performance or composition or teacher, and not feeling I was excellent enough at any one of those things, and in a way, I didn't want to be just purely that one thing i could see and feel the connections between this but couldn't couldn't harness it at that point i did this course and came through feeling that that connection was starting to be made within myself and i was going out into quite a few contexts quite quickly you know working with dancers working with teachers working with young people um, going to hospices and just feeling that i had enough in me as a musician to start help to make things happen where people felt valued and able to participate in something that felt relevant and it felt I didn't feel at any point I was on a job for life um, but I felt I was on the beginning of a path and this making your own path I think is such an important thing where there's a momentum and you start to build something up meanwhile you know, I was looking at people around me coming out at the same time, you know, going into the profession, but critically people who were in the profession already and maybe had been for 10, 15, 20 years in the classical profession. And this idea of a job for life was becoming less and less, um, well, less and less relevant in some ways, but also um, less and less likely because the funding situation 
is, which was quite different, you say, from maybe from some of the more continental European and Eastern European situation. But in this country, through the 1980s, that really started to come apart, mm. where it, it really wasn't a secure thing or sustainable thing, to use your word, to assume that however highly trained you were, that you were just going to get a seat in an orchestra and that's it, you're made for the rest of your life. So there is a demand to recognise that and start to think of a portfolio of skills that you could develop exactly. uh, and build in that portfolio. In and how much is classical music relevant today? You know, I, I got uh, this uh, invitation to work uh, in one uh, European uh, project where they connect different countries and cultures and yeah. and their aim is basically to attract young audience to classical music. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the center uh, who contacted me in Lithuania They said, you know, we are not interested in classical music. This is not the direction we want to go. But they still agreed to, to do the grant because they see yes. meaning, you yeah. know, in, in, in yeah. that way. That, But it's interesting because it's a, it's a cultural house, mm-hmm. you know, and, yes. and they, yeah. are, they don't see purpose or value in, no. in classical music. And I, I just wanted to ask, what do you think? <laughs> uh, I think... <laughs> I think classical music I'm I'm hesitating and laughing because I I am an idealist <laughs> you know I have a sort of but I a pragmatic idealist I I I think so much of this is relevant to our life you know, music is relevant to our life and we need to be able to engage with music that is out there in any shape and form in its purest form so I would include classical music in that but we need also to be able to make it our own in terms of what you do with it, if you're a musician already, or how you receive it and how you play with it as a participant, as a consumer, as a listener. And that is happening in our democratized technological society in terms of how people interface with music. And classical music is such a part of that. And I think the more people can hear that sound world the nuance of classical world the expression the the subtleties the complexities the extraordinary sound worlds of so-called classical music and what, what do we mean by that because even when you say classical music well is that just the classical period or is maybe that maybe it's just music it's music well exactly i was hoping <laughs> you'd say it rather than me because that I should have said it at the start. That's why I said it's music. And it, I, it, it sounds such a cliched thing to say. But, but it, it is. It's music. And so what... Sorry, I'm going back also to where, where I started. And it was something you said when you were talking about how your friend, you and your friend in certain situations where you're like, well, what, what would we do with our music here? And going back to that turning point for me, having had years where you're just part, being piled up with skills and techniques and knowledge, wonderful knowledge and understanding of music and its journey, particularly through the last three, four hundred years of the European canon. And that is still a tiny part of the whole world of music, but we have become, it's become such a part of our our psyche of our mindset as a as a culture as a society and we can come back to that in a minute but you can lo- i think you can lose connection with what's at the heart of this what's at the heart of it with literally with rhythm and melody and harmony and even as you start to talk about that i think this is a bit of a a natural journey you start to think of melody and harmony and rhythm in terms of how you're taught it and how that's built up in our sense in the in the western tonal classical tradition that's all fine and that's great and it's built up this extraordinary canon that i've just referred to the whole spectrum but i think to think of it as music becomes the most important part of it because it's it's not just what's written and set through repertoire it's what you can play with what you can improvise with what you can start to combine in different ways uh and i think classical the way that's been done through the so-called classical music process is a really fundamental and important part of how we can keep thinking about music now and into the future but we have to do that with open hearts and open minds and uh, allow ourselves to use all the classical music 
high-end music, the European canon, whatever you want to call it, which is part of that much bigger musical spectrum, just think how that can start to play into now and in the future. I'm immediately thinking, you know, because you mentioned all those skills Mm -hmm. in in a way that we are highly trained and uh, excellent musicians, but in a way we are very narrow trained. Yes, yes. Because as you said, suddenly you realize that, wow, I can you know, play a Rachmaninoff concerto. But I have zero improvisational... I wouldn't say, like, zero, but, you know, you would not feel comfortable in a professional environment to improvise suddenly. No, no. And uh, I'm just curious myself, how how do you start composing and improvising, you know, once you are already a foreign musician? I'm thinking, how could I involve or uh, make it more interesting for young younger audiences you know mm-hmm. so yeah so how do you you know incorporate those new skills when you are already a formed musician yeah start with yourself <laughs> seriously start with yourself which you are you know you are asking these questions and it sounds to me like you are on uh, a very important journey of course you are um <laughs> But um, I think the combination of asking questions, really knowing who you are in relation to that, and that, when if you've been on years and years of you know, very um, um, intensive training, mm. once we've had a turn, it's you, you can lose your. It's not that you lose sense of. Really, perhaps you do lose sense of why you do what you do. Yes, but it's again. It's something I said at the beginning. It's it's ensuring that you give yourself time and we as institutions such as conservatoires give people time to keep reflecting and thinking about what you do and why you do it and how you can best use these extraordinary skills in different contexts and part of that process is identifying what you feel you want to do and you can do best so it's not it's not that we all have to become these, and I know you're not saying this, but I think the fear is, and there is a lot of fear here, I haven't used that word yet, um, it's that if we start to pull these things apart or question these things, we're going to pull apart this amazing tradition and the excellence and the qualities that come with it. No, it's, it's not either or. It's all of these things um, and just... Um, ensuring that classical music, you know, if, if we want to term it in that way, can keep evolving and developing so that it remains relevant and all the qualities and the nuances of it play in a relevant way and in an effective way into society now and in the future. Yes. What I've noticed that it actually it's not the music itself, which which is... Uh, foreign no. especially for no. the young audiences i think no. it's the the way it's presented or right. okay. you know the the culture yep it's about you know maybe halls being too uh, strict exactly and it's not about the music itself i think yeah exactly exactly so the context that you present and perform music is such a key part of this the way you program you know Debussy going into an improvisation into I mean there's all sorts of programming that goes on now you see even in concert halls but that in other situations as well you've got orchestras you know who name themselves after a car park Mm. you know there's all so it's I think it's there and it is it's your generation you know (laughs) thinking and developing these things Um, and we've just got to keep knocking at the door and then starting to think how not only does this work for audiences as we know them, but audiences as we don't know them at the as moment, we engaging, yes. you know, and what we can do in those situations. And you know, speaking as a musician who spent many years working in what you might call social community and community and educational settings, which is very much about you going out into these contexts. You could be sitting in any sort of room. You know, it could be a hospital ward. It could be a prison. It could be a a classroom Um, and you're going to make some music happen. Now, I'm talking about making music happen in the creative sense as a composer, but you can think of that as a performer. What can you make happen with you performing in those contexts with interactive 
process is starting to emerge from that or a combination of the two where you're playing and there's intense listening i mean the intensity of listening you would receive if you were to perform in a prison or a hospital ward as long as it's set up in the right way um you know so it's fit for the purpose in terms of what it's there to do and it's connecting to the context and this is so key i think for you and your partner as well that you are thinking about well we've got this this rich material that we can take what can we do with this how do we play it how do we present it how do we offer the opportunity for people to engage with this in a different way Hmm. it's endless it's oceans of possibilities it really are and do you find the resistance among your colleagues you know the people who are more classically thinking so to say or you or you you would say that you surround yourself only with the curious minds and you know innovation well no that that's a very (laughs) another very good and very important question uh and i So the answer you can't it can't just be one. You cannot be in a bubble. It needs to be with everyone. I might certainly so the healthy argument is always good. It's really good. And you see that goes back that's really interesting because it goes back to your question about the conservatoires and you know, just being quite honest, I've I've the journey I've been on, which has been very linked to the Guild Hall um in different ways over the years. Some days you look and you think, has anything changed? Has any, and not just Guildhall, but just generally. Uh, and there is a big conversation going on, particularly amongst the UK conservatoires at the moment, about the conservatoire role in society and critically the musicians and the artists' role in society, those who are coming through a conservatoire context. So to, to play to your question... I think the big shift is that strategically and from a leadership point of view there is a shift. I think the type of discussion, dialogue and strategies and priorities that have been set out now by organizations and institutions such as conservatoires play do play into this. Yeah, you know, we need to be relevant, we need to be um fit for the purpose for now. and into the future not just as institutions but for the young people and students we're working with and indeed the continuing professional development the lifelong learning we offer for everyone through their whole careers so that's fine but that could just be rhetoric still it's how that then translates into what happens on the ground and i think that's where it's still you know you get the knotty discussions and uh, you'll get some areas of of music making where that's really happening and really changing and others where it's a bit a bit slower but also there's different types of innovation you know innovation within a chamber music course or within the string department or the piano department can take many different forms to what innovation might be in composition or electronic music i wanted to ask yes how do you make an innovation it's such a restricted form of art you know yeah yeah no, well I, i think that's see the cross fertilization of this these things then becomes really interesting so the dialogue i mean i i have to say when when i was um doing a lot of this work earlier on we used to work with groups of students where they were deliberately mixed together you mm. know and you would go out as a group to perform a piece and um that you'd created yourself in lots of different contexts in the community um and that would provoke all sorts of debate and discussion um that that still happens and in fact now in the school we have not just the musicians but there's a year a year one project where all the musicians the actors and the production artists it's happening at the moment are literally brought together and they have to create a piece as a group of about 20 students from a common starting point work something up and then come back and present it mm. to each other so Yeah, you know, it's and it's all part of premise like just think about who you are and what you do and how you can use your skills in different ways. Um so I think the framework is there, you know, the strategic framework is there, you know, in terms of institutions. I think there are frameworks there in terms of certain blocks of things that happen within the curriculum um as part as, as special projects as opportunities for students outside their main curriculum. but there's still this core you know the core imperative of what you come to study and how you know 
what's seen as excellent and what your priorities are I think there's still some work to do there definitely and maybe that's never going to be what what's the perfect is there a perfect outcome to this I don't know there is because things will keep changing uh, and adapting over the years um but the core thing is that this, these questions are being asked and those questions are alive throughout the training and development of musicians, of artists at places like Hildor. And how much work uh, currently, your work involves, you know, generating ideas and just, you know, actually doing the administration work and... Well, God, you ask good questions. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's too much administration, I'll be honest. You know, and actually, um, it's always good for these sorts of conversations. You can be honest with yourself. And I, I've been going through quite um, a personal journey in terms of just ask... You know, I've been saying, just keep asking yourself questions. Yourself questions. And I, I've been on this very natural journey and it was a conscious decision to move away from being the practitioner into the sort of more manager head of department then strategic leadership because I firmly believe that change needs to come from within mm. you know, yeah. sorry just to interrupt because you said the very important thing that it was a conscious decision yeah and I think uh You know, even personally for me, I don't even understand if, 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 you know, doing a podcast, having a festival, you know, was it my conscious decision? Because I think very often, especially as practicing musicians, yeah. we feel that as if this was the way to go because the circumstances happened, you know? Yes. And I think it's very interesting what you said, that it was your con conscious decision. Yes. Gosh, no, that's very interesting as well. So, it's the one says it's the, it's the portfolio you build of these opportunities. Um, you could even talk about it—a constellation of opportunities and things that are out there. And as a as a as a person, as a human being, you and as someone who's been trained in something, you are out there and you are looking for those opportunities, identifying opportunities. Some you make for yourself some come your way so you're making decisions I recall making decisions in relation to those it's a huge challenge especially if you're a freelance mm. person you're out there uh, and you're trying to manage this combination of opportunities coming your way things that you're trying to get going yourself um, and I recall I still have the but particularly at the time when I was really freelance where you're it's like a tsunami sometimes and you're just You're just trying to keep going with all these things. And then you're trying to start to make decisions about, well, I, I'm really going to focus on this and do less of, of this because this is what, where I want to go and what I want to build up. Now, for me, that was moving more and more into, a, into an organisation in the first instance, the Guildhall and then the Barbican uh, because I, I was doing a lot of work for these types of organisations And I felt I was getting a lot from the projects I was doing for those organisations, but I felt increasingly that not enough was being made of these projects for them to become a sustainable part of the organisation. So rather than projects that were nice to have, to say, oh, we do these projects, by the way, whilst we keep doing what we've always been doing, <laughs> how can we start to bring these things really into the heartbeat of the organisation? And I guess the pinnacle moment for me in that journey was becoming a director of creative learning as it was called where I was overseeing all the the creative collaborative societal based projects that the Barbican and the Guildhall were doing but I was doing it as a director as a sort of leader and it was I had to leave behind doing the projects themselves um, which in order to make the difference or try and make a difference within the organisation in terms of literally how they're structured, what they prioritise, how arts and learning projects were thought about together, how students play into those in terms of creating their own opportunities or having experiences. Uh, and that's that's a whole other conversation. You know, some things have worked from that, some things, you know, you feel you get a bit lost and you... Um, personally but in relation to you know how the institution deals with those things uh, and very long story short I've come to a point now where it feels very important to start to re-engage with some of those things as a as a thinker as a doer um, 
because I feel we're on to a next, a next phase of this work, and I'm not quite sure how that's uh, articulated just yet. But I feel there's um, sorry, I'm I'm uh, not be quite clear at the moment. But I think um, what what I found my saying, let's put it like this: um, a few months ago, I was asked to go and give a presentation in Montreal. It's the first big trip away since COVID and actually it was all about the role of musician in society and I talked particularly about the creative imperative um, and I just found myself saying that I feel it's certainly on a UK perspective it's almost like we've, we've come a full circle I feel a lot of the things we're talking about now were being talked about maybe 30, 40 years ago um, in some ways that could be immensely depressing thinking well <laughs> what's actually late. changed yeah. you know for goodness sake we've been talking about this for a while but actually um, life is pretty cyclic as we know uh, and being philosophical for a moment I think this, this plays into western culture and non-western culture I think we are quite linear in our development thinking of music the way mm. we think about classical music or western music it's a linear linear journey a historical concept but in many cultures and in folkloric culture it's very cyclic as well and you come back to where you started but not quite at the same place it is a different place because you've been on the journey and it's usually a slightly deeper place as well and i think we're at a point now where with everything going on in the world with all that's been going on in our world of music and creativity in the arts um, and in education we're ready to move on to a next stage and so everything we've learned over the last 30 40 years is ready to be taken into a into a new place i feel you're asking some of the same questions that were being asked 30 40 years ago so in one sense like has nothing changed <laughs> however I think what you're doing and what many people such as yourself are doing is way beyond what we what we were doing. It's you're thinking in a very imaginative and different way, both in terms of what you take out to society, but what you do with your own art form, your own performance practice, your own repertoire. I think it's it's possible that the situation is like that and I'm asking this question just because the the environment where I grew up and you know the art I'm making is so conservative that you know even asking these tiny, less conservative questions feels a lot already. But I think if we talk about, I don't know, electronic music or, or pop, pop culture, it's, it's very different. I think they, they are, you know, much more advanced than us in a way. I, I, I'd agree. I think particularly in the world of um, technology. Exactly. I think it's just, and certainly the course here, which has grown and grown, uh, over the last few years and I think that's a real sign about the direction of travel in terms of what a conservatoire is there to do and be uh, I think conservatoires should be like laboratories mm. you know there's a place and they are in some ways already particularly when you go to courses like that um, I've I didn't write about it in that article but I have talked and written about the idea of the art school you know the, an art school uh, sort of mid 20th century sort of made quite a conscious decision I think to move away from just being about fine art you know because by then they were already getting conceptual art and design and technology and these other things were coming into play and fashion and all of that but they were sort of behind the scenes in the back room I went to an amazing presentation by um, the then provost of the Royal College of Art um, and he talked about how these things were brought out from the back room into the sort of shop window. So art schools then became about fine art and design and technology and fashion and conceptual art. And if you go to an end of year show at an art school, all of these things are presented and not just for the few who have a particular interest in these, but for the widest possible public for the political circles, for the industry themselves. There's a real dialogue going on between these worlds. That just does not happen, as far as I can tell, in terms of conservatoires, dialogue with the creative industries, with society at large, what it is bringing um, to people uh, uh, in a way that art schools already are. So 
I think that's that's a big shift that's waiting to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, the, this interface, and I think courses such as electronic music um, and design, sound design, technology, the combination of sound and vision, that's really starting to move. My challenge, just to, you know, my little but on this, and it's an interesting one about conservatoires is you mentioned popular music and indeed there's jazz there's jazz you know where of course there's improvisation and there's it's contemporary music and it presents contemporary music in different ways as does popular music a counter argument with the role of conservatoires is that once genres such as jazz and even popular music start to become embedded into conservatoire culture there's a danger that they maybe suffer some of the challenges that classical music has suffered because you start to get into particular methodologies and pedagogies and way things that ways that things are taught and uh, it's a question really is is can jazz and popular music keep evolving and being as innovative as possible um, rather than becoming ossified and caught into a particular way of doing things do you see what I mean? So yeah, the heights of jazz could be seen as the 50s, the 40s, 50s, or maybe the 30s, 40s and 50s. And lots of happened since then. But it's yeah, that the premise upon which is taught and a lot of the things that come through that maybe focus on that area. You could say the same about popular music. But 60s, 70s, 80s was probably the heyday of popular music as we know it. And um, then it can get stuck maybe and taught in a particular Way. so it's just to ensure that all of these things remain alive they keep developing so they're approached in a laboratory type way exactly always uh, always developing because the context is changing as you it's, say exactly so the coexistence of classical just taking classical jazz popular and now electronic music if those things are really coexisting not just as silo departments that do their thing with the students and staff really having little idea of what's going on in those other mm-hmm. contexts, you actually make more space for those things to cross-fertilise, to experiment, to try different things, um, which is what then produce is then music. It's about how you interface and what you do with music and how you start to contextualise and use those things. Mm. You're right that there is a lot of this division that, you know, you're a pop musician, you're a classical musician, you know, there and... And we are not really in the, even in the same circles. Yes. Yeah, you know, yeah. we are like different <laughs> people to each other. <laughs> I mean, if you can come out of a conservatoire and say, I'm a musician and really know what that means. And part of you, you use the word maker, you know, part of this recent discourse around conservatoires, particularly the UK and I think European conservatoires, is this notion of this concept of musicians as makers. So musicians who have their craft are really good at what they do, but they they then have these things around them where they know what music making is for them and how they can use music making in lots of different contexts. But you can't do that in isolation or just through classical music or through popular music. It can be your anchor. It could be your personal identity because that's the music you're passionate about and you love. But how how do you then start to use that in other ways, in different contexts, with different so-called styles and genres of music? Mm-hmm. Very interesting question. And uh, I'm thinking about uh, you personally. You know, how do you find the uh, motivation? You know, do you sometimes feel uh, upset in a way that you know you you let your hands down and say like, "Oh, this is not possible." You know, I'm asking for a point because very often, you know, I maybe I lose meaning or yeah. Um, especially, I think maybe because it it relates to you know the that I'm in in the in the place where I'm looking to make my profession sustainable. Yes. So, you know, I do a lot of uh, creative work, but I, I haven't still find a way to make it sustainable. Uh, so I'm I'm thinking uh, if you have those down moments and how do you find, you know, meaning in what you do and motivate yourself? Yeah, oh, definitely. Definitely. I am an optimist. <laughs> and, and You're you lucky. Be pra- pragmatic <laughs> optimism. I mean, it's, and perhaps it's easier to say at my stage you know and it's sort of um uh yeah some way into my career to put it politely but um that, that's always 
that's never left me that, op- that optimism and I think a belief that you can make a difference and you know that has to come from within but it also has to come from the people around you you know and uh, I've been very fortunate uh, that I've had people there to support provoke encourage me along the way and actually Guildhall has been a big big part of that for all the challenges it's there you know as as a sort of catalyst for those difficult conversations for those the, the tensions as well as the extraordinary releases that you have and the possibilities that come through that um i think the one of it was a difficult time for many of us but during the covid and the lockdown period um that threw up a lot for me as i think it did for many in terms of what we what we can offer and i was in a relatively secure position i had a job you know a real job as you say you you guys you know who just uh, people who are either still students or just out there trying to make a living it's just like suddenly everything stops you know and it needed highly creative thinking like right we've got this money we're going to buy some technology rather than (laughs) spend it on live performance because we can't do it and that's that's been a real eye-opener to me because i i think it brought home to me um the, the, the danger for me, well, it was more than the danger, it was a reality that I'd become disconnected with what it's really like on the ground. I'd become so caught up in the strategic development and direction of what we were trying to do as the Barbican and as the Guildhall and Barbican Guildhall together and making decisions that were based on strategy rather than reality sometimes. And it's not that it quite came crashing down, but the sort of it, there was a reality check in terms of like needing to stop and take into account where we are now and where we need to go next, and what my role is in relation to that. Because the big doubt for me became like, have I actually been making any real? I've been feeling the last 10, 15, 20 years we've been on this really important journey with all the changes. And then suddenly you stop and think, what has actually changed here? And the biggest moment of that was when Black Lives Matter really came to the fore with the killing of George Floyd, which, of course, in amongst several other things, was a a major thing that happened during the pandemic. Uh, And then the whole question around equity, diversity and inclusion. And speaking from the point of view of just us the guild or the bar can be in london and how representational are we of what what's going on in society what london is um and i could think of many things we had been doing that were representative of that and i mean it in every representation in every sense you know a lot of the work i've done over the years has been about getting to people who are just un- underrepresented who do not have the uh, access to things that we do and that's about bringing stuff out and giving people the opportunity not only to engage but to progress and be part of what we do to feel that they have a right to engage in music making to train to be musicians if they want and it doesn't just have to be in classical music if that's what you want to do great but there are these other directions as well Uh, but somehow looking at the infrastructures and thinking this still this still isn't right and realizing how much i still had to learn for myself which is in one breath incredibly exciting my god there's still so much to do and to learn but then also incredibly shocking talking at oneself you know, it says you thought you knew what you didn't think you knew everything but you one felt you had a sense of you're going in the right direction and actually so many assumptions thrown up in the air um and then <clears throat> It, it takes you into other places in terms of what what a, an equitable institution is, what an equitable approach to music making is, what diversity and inclusion really means in terms of people in the room and people who have a right to be heard and to be seen, to be able to do things in a way that they want to do rather than the way that you feel is best. Taking the time to listen and learn from others and also to be part of conversations and hopefully to give something back as well and to um, start to build more networks where this can happen you know I'm very struck by even this conversation now and 
our conversation, you know, the conversation we had before and what you're obviously interested in, and I'm getting it more and more from other, from other people as well, that people feel really isolated and on their own and you're trying to make something sustainable and make something work, which is really important and that is how things are going to change and the infrastructure is still not there, the support mechanisms are still not there. So I want to put more energy into helping to create those. Um, the strategic part of that with the guild hall is to make us ourselves a genuine lifelong learning institution so it's not just something that's there when you're here doing your undergraduate postgraduate studies it's something that's there through short courses through support mechanisms through conversation and dialogue throughout people's lives and not just for Guildhall I would love it to become something that's there it might be part of a bigger network you know of other conservatoires other groups of people as well